0: Welcome to Politics Pulse. I'm Matt Robeson. We're broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. And we're part of the Beyond Politics family of podcasts. And that's the exact theme of what we're doing today. One of the most fraught political issues in America and the world is the threat of global warming. It's bearing down on us like a freight train. And we're already feeling the rumbles and storms, heat waves, extinctions. There is no doubt that politics is right smack dab in the middle of this. The simple fact is that the American Republican Party has a very different position on this issue than the Democratic Party and the other half of America, and indeed than most of the rest of the world. And that fault line is one of the great complications to trying to achieve a smarter, more coordinated approach on energy and carbon in the world. But this goes beyond politics too. It's an issue that's fundamentally driven by economics, markets, and social psychology. Our guest today, Dan Dicker, is an expert in all of those perspectives. He's devoted over 30 years to developing a unique and deeply informed perspective on energy markets. He's appeared as an energy analyst with all the major financial news networks, including CNBC, Bloomberg, both U.S. and U.K., and CNN Financial Network. He is the author of three books on energy markets, including... Shale Boom, Shale Bust, The Myth of Saudi uh, Saudi America, Oil's Endless Bid, Taming the Unreliable Price of Oil to Secure Our Economy, and his new book, Turning Oil Green. It is a thoughtful, practical, realistic, and entertaining full frontal assault on some of the mistakes that advocates make on both sides of the climate fight. Even if you think your mind is made up on issues like this, I recommend hearing him out because this book can make everyone be a little bit more thoughtful and maybe even more strategic in getting to solutions on getting climate right. Dan Digger, welcome to Politics Pulse. Well, thanks so much, Matt. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. It really is a pleasure. Your book is, I'm not kidding, a fascinating and entertaining read, which is not something that comes readily when you're talking about a book about energy, climate, energy markets, So one of the unfortunate things about our politics these days is you sort of have to put a label on what you're about to say right up front. People have to know where you're coming from before they'll even start to listen. So you aren't coming from a hard and fast one side or the other perspective to the entire climate description. Where are you coming from? And what is your basic thesis here in a nutshell?
1: my life is, is, you know, I come from a left-leaning political background, but yet I spent 30 years in the energy world. And in the energy world, almost everyone is uh, unilaterally, unilaterally from the right. And, uh, and from that perspective, at least living inside that perspective, you do get to understand what motivates oil companies. And it's not 100%, you know, the economics Uh, Although that plays a very big role, obviously. But uh, there is this perception from the left that the only thing that oil companies and energy guys are interested in is profits and to hell with the environment. And that's obviously not entirely true. And from the left, you know, you also get um, um, uh, from the right, you also get an an additional problem where there's been a lionization of American uh, oil companies. Uh, you know, they've, they've been independent, striking out on their own, drilling a rag uh, well, getting their fingernails dirty. You know, it's the capitalist model that everyone kind of clings to, especially, you know, in uh, on the right, and especially in oil-rich states like Texas, North Dakota, and Oklahoma, and, and, and Arkansas, and, and what have you. So uh, their issue is that they continue to um, to cling to this very deregulated kind of environment that gives mix a, a oil production United States very much a free for all. And I, what I've witnessed over the course of the last 30 years is that has done nothing except uh, destroy, for the most part, the US energy industry for a number of reasons. And we're at a moment of time now where we really don't have any more time to, to mess around and have to make some positive movement uh, towards um, you know, a sustainable energy future. And that being said, I don't believe there is any possible way to move towards that future without somehow um, engaging with the oil companies and the right and with the jobs that they produce and and the economic benefits that they produce, uh, because oil companies, when it comes to energy, have not only the capitalization, they have the money that's required to move the ball forward very quickly in terms of uh, sustainable fuels. They also own the infrastructure, and they have all the experience in the world in how to deal with energy on a national and a global basis. You just cannot possibly uh, make the motion forward that you might want to without using the energy companies uh, in the mix uh, to a great degree. And so that's really what the book is about. The book is about finding a way to satisfy the left, make fast and important progress towards sustainable fuels, but also bring the right along and the energy companies they represent along so that they can be a part of the solution because I feel that they have to be a part of the solution. Well, it's an absolutely
0: brilliant thesis from the standpoint of, I think there is a real yearning in America for some practicality and some realism about solutions here. I sense a deep suspicion of the extremes of, and it, it, this sounds like a both sides-ism, I, I want to acknowledge up front. We agree. We fundamentally agree. We both come from the same kind of center-left perspective. Climate change, I should say global warming, climate change is a euphemism. Global warming is a gigantic threat. And oil companies, no one is saying that they are blameless in this at all. But I personally love the perspective in the book that Look, it's like Yitzhak Rabin said: you don't make peace with friends; you make peace with unsavory enemies. And there has to be some collaboration. There are assets that oil and gas companies bring to the table. So I want to I want to get to your your main core thesis in the book, and I'm not giving away a giant secret for people who are thinking of going out and buying it, which I recommend you do, because. You say right up front in chapter one, I'm gonna tell you the answer right right at the beginning here. And that answer, it's three
1: words and you put it all in bold. What is that answer and why? Well, my main thesis, and of course I break off in lots of places, but to put it simply, the idea is to use the markets that are already in place to make oil a lot more expensive than it is right now. And that does three things. Uh, first of all, um, a high oil price makes alternative energy more competitive, which it isn't right now. And, uh, you know, historically, you can prove that the greatest um, uh, the greatest uh, strides made forward in developing green energy, uh, particularly in Europe, which was done when oil prices were above $100 a barrel. So if you make uh, green energy sources more competitive, obviously, people will reach for them uh, more quickly than they will oil. Uh, similarly, Um, If you make oil prices higher, people are less apt to want to reach for fossil fuels. That's a a secondary plus. Third, if oil companies can get a much higher basis price for oil, what happens is that they are able to retain their profitability as as, uh, oil companies while their volumes go down by a significant amount. So they can retain jobs. They can retain the economic uh, positives that they bring to the marketplace. They can continue to pour money into developing uh, uh, alternative technologies so that they're prepared for the, the uh, transition when it comes. And in all ways, it's sort of a win-win-win-win-win kind of proposition because the left gets what they want in a very fast um. um um, uh, increase in uh, renewable and other sustainable technologies. The oil companies get profitability back to their shareholders, and uh, the right wing feels as if they're not abandoning you know, their economy and the economies of the Texases and the, the North Dakotas and the Oklahomas and so on. So these are the kinds of motions I think you can find, even in this crazy political environment, some bipartisan agreement. Um, towards moving uh, this country uh, much more quickly towards um, a solar, wind, and, and hydrogen, and other alternative fuels. How do we get to this place? As you
0: put it, you know, all in bold, all caps. Prices drive choices. That's basic economics. Makes a lot of sense. How do we get there? How do we get to this place? This win-win-win with high oil prices. So far. The strategy of the environmental advocacy sector movement has been to push against conventional fuels. And from a a basic economic standpoint, one would think that if you really could shift demand down, that would naturally cause price to go up. And so it would seem like it's not the craziest strategy in the world, but you say that that doesn't really work. So why doesn't that work? And, and what would actually work better to get to this triple win?
1: Okay, so that's, you know, the this is the entirety of the book. And, and we could go into this from all angles. From from the left, I would say, you know, the, the first thing we have to do is, is not try to demonize uh, the fossil fuel companies, because we're going to need them. And we're going to need the fuel that they produce. And that's a tough, that's one tough hurdle. From the right, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to find Find them uh, willing to support um, the um, development and production of alternatives, both inside um, um, uh, old-fashioned oil companies, energy companies, and also with new energy companies, which they've always been loath to do. Um, you know, witness Obama and Solyndra—that's the that's the latest example of that. And uh, finally, you have to bring in a whole bunch of new regulatory, federal regulatory structures. To flatten the action of oil prices, so that we don't have this kind of uh, roller coaster move with prices, where we see a, a plus hundred dollars for four or five years, then we'll see sub fifty dollars for four or five years. We're just coming out of a, 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 a time period where we've had sub fifty dollar oil, uh, basically with with minor you know upticks since twenty fourteen. That can't happen if we're going to start to move uh, forward. Uh, smartly towards uh, green energy. We have to see oil prices go higher. We have to see them go higher, sustainably higher. We have to see them go up there and stay there. And we have to make sure that, you know, the uh, oil companies don't uh, overproduce in the midst of those kind of uh, price advantages so that um, they flood the market as they've done three times in the past and force oil prices to go lower again. And you do that all through uh, federal mandates and regulation of various kinds, and, and they run the gamut from carbon taxes to regulations on production guidelines to venting and flaring of natural gas to uh, you know, pipeline um, restrictions. Uh, it runs the gamut to, 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 a, to a, um, uh, the incentives that I'm talking about for renewable fuels. All of these things um, drive oil prices higher and um they will continue to drive them higher and that's what you need in order to develop these sustainable fuels and make them a bigger part of our national and global energy portfolio one of, I'm so glad you you
0: touched on the boom and bust cycle that that cyclical price fluctuation the roller coaster that uh, the oil and gas sector has been in for the last decade at least more, more like 15 20 years you very entertainingly lay out right at the front of the book, two stories about how the oil and gas industry has colossally messed things up. Um, And I was wondering if you would, what I want to get to is the question of how can we work with them and manage them a little bit better and maybe prevent them from being their own worst enemy. But maybe you could just Um, Again, I don't feel like I'm giving away too much of what's in the book here, because this really is right up front. Um, Maybe you could just share with with our listeners uh, those stories about the LNG and the rush to build export terminals and what happened with that. And then the the boom and bust cycle
1: of fracking over the last 10 years, which was its own tragedy. Right. And, and, uh, you know, LNG is a very interesting story. I use it in the front of the book. Because what it is, it's, it's sort of a, a, an analogy for the bigger story, which is the entirety, which is the remaining entirety of the book, which is shale itself. And that is that it has been um, because of a, a complete lack of regulation um, that oil companies have been allowed to basically be on their own completely in the way that they pull oil out of the ground, how they price it, how they distribute it, and uh, the profitability that they make from it. And, you know, I can prove, and I think I do prove it pretty well in the book, that this has been disastrous for them, just disastrous. You only need to look at the stock prices of oil companies since, you know, 2014 to realize we've had a a, just a screaming stock market for the last seven, eight, nine years, screaming, except for oil stocks. They've done horribly. They've been at the bottom of the pile of performance every year for the last six or seven years. It looks like 2021 is going to be better for them. But again, you know, that's like coming from zero. It's it's not so hard to do. And the point is that that's mostly attributable to the deregulated environment that they've been allowed to work under, which has not only destroyed shareholder value and uh, killed jobs, and but it's destroyed one of the greatest opportunities this country's ever given to us in terms of our own natural resources, that is shale oil and shale gas, which on the face of it should have been a tremendous boon for everybody in this country, not just oil companies, but for all of us. I mean, it, it should have been, you know, a cheap and viable and, and easily uh, maintained uh, natural resource that should have made the economy money and made all of us money in, in terms of, you know, our economic um, wealth. And in fact, it's backfired 110% where it's become not a profit maker, but just an incredible loss leader where trillions of dollars of capital have basically gone down the drain while uh, trillions of tons of CO2 have unnecessarily gone into the atmosphere. So, I mean, the time seems to be right to me to kind of turn this boat around and stop leaving these guys to their own devices, because when you leave them to their own devices, stuff goes wrong. And it's time for us to, to make some changes so that they're under certain guidelines so that stuff starts to go right. I don't think we have a choice anymore. We have to make sure that stuff starts to go right. It's really fascinating. And, and just to make sure I kind of get the, the, the sequence right
0: here, because it, it's, it was kind of incredible. I, I sort of, I, I remember it, some of it, I lived through some of it. And yet, so there's the advent of hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling which is this technological breakthrough. And we discovered that you know, the Permian shale, the all, all of these shale deposits that have gas and oil locked beneath them, all of a sudden we can access this huge resource. And the way you tell in the book, all these companies say, hey, you know what we could do? We can liquefy this. You have LNG, liquefied natu- natural gas, and we can build all these terminals. We can export it. And the prices are high and we are going to make an absolute killing and then the tragedy of the commons happens everyone overdoes it prices go plummeting and all of a sudden now you've got way too much supply and you can't it's not profitable to export this stuff so lots of people go bankrupt and then some people say okay all right all right here's what we're going to do we built the terminals but let's reverse everything let's let's
1: let's start importing is that, is that the basic story here? That's the story for LNG. I, again, and I just use that as an example. There's lots of them in the industry industry. If you want to find places where the, the industry is screwed up, you don't have to go far. I mean, you can just look in, in, this, in the spring of this year when we saw oil prices actually go negative, you know, negative $37 in April. And, you know, that's partially because of the pandemic, uh, but it's mostly because of the bankruptcy of, of energy markets you know, that these things can happen. It's, it's you know, to, to say to somebody that oil went negative is hard for them to understand. So imagine you walked into a deli, for example, and ordered a, a roast beef sandwich and the counterman handed you the sandwich and 10 bucks and said, see you later. And that's really what, what we're talking about when we're talking about negative energy. Somebody's paying you to take it uh, and burn it. And that doesn't make any sense at all. It should give you, tell you all you need to know about how bankrupt, you know, the systems are, that that could happen even for a brief moment. So in terms of the cycling of energy prices, you know, giving boom and bust and and destroying the industry over the long haul, there's been not one or two of these, but there's been three of these in the past 10 years, up, down, sideways. And um, in fact, since 2000, the first time that that oil busted, and uh, then in 2007, And then again, 2014, and then again in 2018, and then again, you know, in 2020 when the pandemic came through, you know, you're looking at five separate boom-bust cycles that have ultimately, uh, you know, uh, taken a lot of capital in and then ultimately flushed it all down a toilet. Uh, So this has got to stop. This is not helping us. It's not helping the energy companies. It's not helping investors. Uh, it's definitely not helping our, our you know, our needed uh, transition towards uh, renewable energy. Um, so again, you know, I've watched the, the energy companies, uh, the energy markets in a lot of various ways over the course of my three-year history. And I'm convinced, you know, that it's, you know, pretty much all of these systems that we've been relying upon, you know, that, that most of them have to go. We've got to try and, and move to something more modern, more regulated, more controlled, and uh, that will benefit all of us as uh, consumers and, and the economy and, uh, and the planet environmentally. Well, of course, no one is going to cry a river
0: for lots of oil and gas producers going bust. I mean, they're not the most sympathetic character in the story. On the other hand, when you talk about trillions of investor dollars being flushed down the toilet, that should concern everybody. It's not so much you know the the wealthy investor that you're worried about it's not so much the oil and gas company that you should be worried about it's the potential of all of that productive capital in the energy sector being I'm going to use a big word for this being misallocated going to a non-productive place when we really need investment in renewables, we need productive, long-term investment. And one of the things you lay out in the book is that what we're talking about with investments like this are stranded assets. We're talking about investments in infrastructure that lasts for a long time. It has a useful, productive life, and from an accounting standpoint, it depreciates over a super long time. And so, you know, it, you, you're buying for you're buying something that you're then not using, and it and it truly is a waste. But look, let me get to to this question. And I think what I'm going to do, since we've got a break coming up, is I'm going to tease it across the break. After we come back, what I want to ask you is how do we help give the oil and gas companies better guardrails, better rules of the road, a, a stricter leash, as it were, so that they're not their own worst enemies and they're not flushing all of our valuable productive capital down the toilet, as you say, because it's clear from everything you've laid out that unfettered market solutions aren't working. It's not It's not doing the trick. On the other hand, planned economic sectors, and you say this in the book as well, they're not great. Historically, too much of a planned economy. And look, as your, as your stories about LNG and the boom and bust cycle show, you can have thousands of smart people involved in trying to predict the future of, of a sector and a market and they can get it all wrong. And so y- you don't want to overplan either. So my question for you, when we get back in a minute, is what, how do you achieve that right balance to sort of get the oil and gas companies on the right track, investing in the right way, not overdoing it and not underdoing it? What's the answer? What do we do here to get ourselves on a more productive
1: track? Well, there, there's lots of things you can do. And, and you know, in, in many ways, obviously, you don't want to have you know full-blown price controls in, in a marketplace like this. But you can apply pressures, um, both from Washington and from a market standpoint, that will help um, drive the price of oil higher, but also make it stable going up and down. Uh, and I lay out a couple of these in the book. I don't know how many you want to discuss. But the SBR is one. You could use it as a buyer of last resort. You could be a buyer of, of oil barrels when the price goes too low. You could be a seller of oil barrels when the price goes too high. That'll help to stabilize, you know, the way that the markets kind of uh, operate. And you won't get this, this wave, this waving kind of up and down roller coaster type move. It can be used to smooth the curve, uh, you know, either upwards or downwards as you, as you like. Uh, I think a carbon tax, and, and more than carbon tax, carbon trading, is a necessary piece, and it's far too long in coming. The oil companies would embrace it at this point. They do very well in all sorts of trading markets, especially with these kinds of trading markets, and they have a value. and I don't think it should be national. I think it should be globalized, um, so that these um, credits can move uh, through through borders. and And you know that screams for you know very much a kind of a crypto blockchain type approach, which I think you know th- we're ready for at this point. I mean that's a very modern kind of market. A system to kind of use you know where so, something is not kind of uh contrived based on one currency or another currency i mean i think this is a necessary thing that has to you know has to be part of the solution um with natural gas in this country we have a lot of um hedging i mean um the flaring and venting of excess natural gas so if you drill an oil well you know some natural gas comes out and in some parts of the country that natural gas is basically useless So what you do is is a lot of guys ask for, um, you know, a a special permit to either vent it into the atmosphere or burn it right at the wellhead. And that's got to stop because number one, you don't ever want to waste a natural resource like that and and throw carbon into the air, you know, for free. If you're going to at least throw carbon in the air, you should get some use out of it. And uh, so if you force oil companies to completely forget about venting and flaring, that also drives the price. It helps the environment and it drives the price of, of oil up, obviously, because you have to now pay for transport to get it out of there or you don't drill somewhere where there's so much natural gas that it doesn't make it uh, monetarily worthwhile to drill. Uh, so that venting and flaring has to stop. Uh, tax rebates have to come in and, and the kinds of rebates for not only um, for, for natural gas, but obviously for renewables that don't come and go depending on who's in the White House. Uh, a Republican group comes in and they just slash every regulatory uh, thing that they can inside the EPA and everywhere else. And a uh, Democratic one comes in and they just put them all back again. Uh, no oil company or no, uh, you know, renewable company can make plans going into the future if they're not convinced that, you know, a, a national energy policy is one that sticks with it uh, no matter who wins the next election. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's other tax incentives that you can use. Um, uh, for example, 45Q just uh, um, got passed with tax incentives for uh, carbon sequestration. It's one of a number of incentives that should be passed for new uh, green type um, um, uh, in, uh, you know, incentivizing green type technologies. And all of this is just a piece of the puzzle. No real price controls on oil, but every one of them, to a certain degree, uh, presses oil higher and when you do press oil higher, again, all of those things I talked about with you, you, know, right at the start of the interview happen in terms of making those green technologies a lot more competitive and uh, helping oil companies remain um, uh, economically viable, you know, while not sacrificing a lot of the good that they're doing in the economy. How do you handle in
0: your prescription, the fact that oil and gas are global commodities and we have OPEC out there, by which we really mean the Saudis, they have for decades controlled and manipulated the price of oil. If we were to enact all of these measures intended to push the price of oil up and make renewables, therefore more competitive, and essentially achieve an engineered market solution to our climate crisis, Would we be accounting for OPEC in that puzzle?
1: And if not, how could we deal with their role in this? Well, the Saudis, you're absolutely right. OPEC equals the Saudis for the most part. And the Saudis have had a Vision 2030 plan in place for 10 years where they have been looking to monetize their oil assets and get out of oil if they possibly can completely. So they will cheer all of this because it does um, for them what they've been trying to do themselves, which is not necessarily pump all they can, like US shale players have been trying to do, but to try to make oil as expensive as possible. That's really their goal because they're not interested in pumping every uh, ounce of oil out of the ground. What they're interested in doing is selling their assets for as much as they possibly can. So they they would be more than happy to leave every drop of oil in the ground provided there was a high price of oil behind it that would allow them to sell those assets for a very, very, very high price. Because that's been their goal for the last 10 years. And the reason why MBS, for example, was given preeminence in the kingdom seven or eight years ago, it was because his plan is to get the Saudis out of oil if they possibly can. And the only way to do that is to trade the asset of oil that they have for capital that they can invest into other things and make their economy more than a one, make their country more than a one commodity economy. And so, really, all of these things that you're talking about have been, will be welcomed by the Saudis and I don't think, and also by everybody else inside OPEC. Again, if you're driving oil prices higher, that's basically all the Iraqis and the Nigerians and the Russians ever wanted in life. Well, that's, that's a really
0: fascinating, I hadn't thought about it that way. That's a really fascinating insight on this. And it does kind of bring up the U.S. side of the coin. And from a political perspective, there really is no more fraught issue than fracking. So let's talk about fracking for a second. It's a morass. I mean, you saw this play out in the last political cycle in 2020, where I mean, nowhere more, I think, than Western Pennsylvania. So you have the Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman now running for U.S. Senate. And he was perhaps the most outspoken Democrat in laying out the case. Look, we have a lot of our base of union workers, thousands and thousands of jobs. It is not realistic to say, we're going to immediately replace all of those jobs with renewables, solar, battery manufacturing, whatever it is that's a, that's a greener technology. On the other hand, as you point out in the book, you have the, the growth of a position from prominent Democrats like uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, that fracking should just be done, period, end of sentence. So how do you think about the entire fracking enterprise., um, you know, is is it is it something that we should be allowing that we should be seeing, as you said earlier, as a potential boon to the economy if and to climate, by the way, if it's done in in the right proportion? or is it, as environmental advocates believe, ultimately, a dead end environmentally and something that we should not be sinking billions of dollars into of what could become stranded assets in a decade or so.
1: I'm going to tell you the, I'm going to give you the sentence that your listeners, they're, they're left leaning. Am I right, Matt? Are they, are they from the left? Well, or? we get, we get all kinds, um, both on the well, right on the Here's podcast, going to be, here's going to be the, the yeah. one sentence in this whole interview that no one's going to believe, but it's absolutely a hundred percent true. And uh, I can tell you this from 35 years of being in the business. And that is all. Energy procurement has risks associated with it, and some are greater than others. And the, even the most, even the most um, green-friendly wind farm has enormous environmental impacts if you bring it up to scale to the degree that it's needed in order to become green. And that runs the gamut from the rare earths that you have to mine with um, uh, inevitable, horrible economic impacts for these turbines to, you know, the birds that you lose that, that get uh, chewed up by blades going into, you know, and so there were risks associated with everything. With fracking, uh, it started as a, in a shot um, right before the year 2000, and it was uh, far less safe then than it is now. Like all technologies, they, 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 they reach, they get used, and, and then they develop the problems. You see the problems, then you solve the problems, and you get more sophisticated in the way that you do it and how you do it. Sorry for our listeners there. You picked up some uh, distortion there
0: in the audio. We can hear it too. And uh, it's, it's right on point because Dan was just talking about some of the risks of technology. We're experiencing them right now. So you were saying about the risks of all technologies.
1: Right. So all, all energy procurement has risks. And uh, natural gas has gotten uh, or fracking of natural gas has gotten a very, very bad reputation going back to, you know, the burning tap, you know, from Gasland, the Josh Fox uh, documentary, which was right you know, where I you could light two.
0: a garden hose on fire. Aboard. Yeah,
1: it's yeah, nonsense. Yeah. It's it's a lot of hooey. But, you know, that's the that's the basic um, that's the basic kind of uh, image that people have in their mind about fracking and fracking has now become so safe. Um, that, you know, it it requires a lot of regulation and a lot of uh, uh, oversight to make sure that it remains safe. But for the most part, the industry has done a pretty good job in in making sure that a lot of the risks that were associated with the early parts of fracking are now pretty much cleared up. You have to stay on top of it. There's no doubt about it. Wastewater management, um, uh, tail ponding, uh, you know, a venting, of course, and a lot of other environmental issues that crop up with fracking. But if you stay on top of it, it's a it's a, a far safer kind of technology than um, than a lot of the others for energy. Uh, that being said, um, we're going to need natural gas, which is where most of the natural gas comes from in this country uh, from fracking. We're going to need that resource to make that transition to uh, renewable fuels as fast as we possibly can. And there's just no way a ban on fracking helps that along, even from the the basis environmental uh, goals that you might have in mind. You're going to need the natural gas, and you're going to need it badly. Uh, If nothing else, than to augment those sustainable fuels when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow, for example, and for a lot of other reasons. I'm just trying to make things simple. So natural gas, uh, you know, in the book, I have this chapter that says, you know, that, um, that, that girl in all those movies who wears the glasses with her hair up, that looks, you know, ugly until, until you actually take a good, hard look at it with a little more of, of a reality face. And then the glasses come off and the hair comes down. And you realize it's, uh, I don't know, name, name your favorite uh, movie star, starlet, who's done that role. And that's natural gas. Uh, At some point there will be an appreciation for the fuel. I hope it'll be soon because through natural gas is just about the only way we can get to solar and wind being really viable um, parts of our energy portfolio. And actually I I, I do wanna pick up on
0: that last point because this is a very controversial point with uh, environmental advocates on one side. So the story, there, there are two stories that I hear in this debate. On the one hand, there are people who take a kind of nuanced view of fracked gas, and they'll say, look, for one thing, you have the electricity generation sector, and you're talking about 27% of all carbon emissions coming from electricity generation in this country. And the simple fact is that 290 coal-fired plants, electricity generation plants have closed In the last decade, 40% of US coal generating capacity has closed. And the major reason is competition from gas fired generators who are not only more economically competitive, but also are emitting far less because gas is a less emitting technology than coal. You also see a geopolitical reality where in the wake of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and the Biden administration reaction to Mohammed bin Salman and the Saudis, and some of the criticism that he's come in for, for perhaps not going far enough, lost in some of that is the fact that the Biden administration has been very clear that they have told the Saudis in no uncertain terms, you have gone down. Our priority list. We are not going to turn all of American foreign policy on the question of Middle East oil and your particular political bugaboos anymore. We're only in that position because of greater energy independence. But, 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 on the other hand, there are intelligent environmental advocates who say, yeah, but that's not a case for incremental investment in fracking. We don't want to be pouring more dollars, even if it's a transitional fuel until we get to full renewables. We don't want to be pouring billions and billions of dollars into building up gas extraction. We want to be pouring those dollars into incremental renewables. What do you make of that argument? Is it where you had left off is it truly the case that we need gas as a bridge to a much more robust renewables
1: future yeah it's true it's truly the case and uh, i wish it wasn't i mean believe me i wish it wasn't i'm an environmentalist too but the, the fact is is that in the history of energy um in the world you don't displace previous technologies. You build on top of them and slowly the the old ones fade away. That is the nature of it. Now you can accelerate the degree to which you build on top and, and watch the old ones fade away. But what you can't do is just displace what's in the marketplace already with some fresh technology. It doesn't work that way. It didn't work that way with wood. It didn't work that way with coal. It didn't work that way with oil. It hasn't worked that way with natural gas, and it's not going to work that way with solar and wind. So, again, you must continue to build like you would from, uh, you know, an ape to Cro-Magnon man to modern, you know, uh, Homo erectus and, um, and, uh, and, and modern man uh, in the same kind of evolutionary way. You don't jump from being an ape to being, um, you know, a modern, a modern man. You, you go through stages and you build on them as you would in any other evolutionary cycle. Now, I know that's not what leftists want to hear, but the truth is that that's the way it works, and it's the way it's always worked, and it's the way it's going to work this time, whether they like it or not. So the, the idea is to educate people enough so that they will embrace that and understand that, yes, natural gas is a, is a transitional fuel so it will uh, disappear over the course of decades um or it will be lesser over the course of decades and never disappear but it will slowly decrease but it has to be uh, uh, the way it has to be the bridge from where from when you get from uh dirtier fossil fuels like like uh, coal and, and oil to um cleaner cleaner uh, energy like um solar uh, um and wind and hydrogen let me
0: as we as we move toward wrapping up, let me see if I can sort of read back. And then this involve this may involve a little bit of my own spin on your argument, but I, I I do think it's it's compelling. What I what I heard both you say today and in 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 reading your book is a plea for, especially I think because you do come from a left-leaning perspective. It's it's mostly a plea to people on the left to think differently about this entire problem as much as one might want to overcome all opposition through the force of argument or sheer force of will um, or consistently winning at the ballot box. Maybe that'll happen, but it hasn't worked so far. And what I heard you suggesting is, look, there's, there's a better way to go here. You, you draw an analogy in the book that I thought was really powerful about the aftermath of the 2003 invasion of Iraq, where there was a move to get rid of anyone associated with the old Saddam Hussein regime. It was the de process. And what happened? All the folks who knew how to run the government and run the economy, who were tainted in some way by association with the old regime, were taken out of the government and there was collapse and chaos. And so what I hear you making a plea for essentially is as untasteful as it may be, as anathema as it may be, folks on the left need to be working with ExxonMobil. They need to be working with BP. They need to be working with the big oil and gas producers and saying, look, how can we make this work for you? How can we make this a win for you and a place that we get what we want? Is that a fair take on your argument or am I a little off base?
1: No, it is, Matt. But I just want to, again, I mean, if you if you read the book, most of the, the, the hate that I spew in that book is reserved for the oil companies. I don't want to. So I have, I have problems with both sides. And uh, the right needs to give up this idea of, of oil companies as being, you know, this, this capitalist dream and of of America as being this independent producer of all the energy it's ever going to need uh, coming from fossil fuels. And in a lot of ways, you know, they have to abandon their their thoughts, their anachronistic and uh, uneducated kind of concepts of how the energy structure needs to work and embrace some of the federal level regulatory uh, measures that are going to be needed to get, you know, the oil companies in line and uh, to be part of this transition and to make them part of the transition that, you know, so that they are not just using the federal government as they have had for decades and decades in the past to maximize profits, because that's something they did. And, uh, you know, we've got to make sure on both sides that we get uh, reasonable responses and, uh, uh, and, and action that moves us directly towards a sustainable energy future. And, uh, you know, to the degree that that can be done, it's going to require education on both sides. So it's not just a plea to the left. It's also a plea to the right. Well, it's absolutely fascinating. I
0: I think your core point is really thought-provoking and and really interesting. It like I like I was saying earlier, it's actually an entertaining book. I I I know that may be a hard sell for people who think that a, a book that that takes on energy well, well, markets I, and economics. I hope but not. it's, it's the, you a, know no, it's a wonderfully entertaining book. I I hope, I hope it out.
1: is because I tried very hard not to get too deep in the weeds and and make it readable. But, uh, you know, as my kids would say, uh, Dad, nobody ever understands what you're talking about. So uh, if, if you do, that's a great thing to say, Matt. And I hope that other people who read it will, will find it uh, more accessible than my kids did. Well, that's the role of our kids, right, to, uh, to give yeah. us that kind of feedback. But it's a great book. It's really thought-provoking.
0: Thanks so much for being on the show and for a really interesting conversation. Thank you, Matt.